श्री गौरी वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जाए श्री मात भगवत गीता की जाए श्री श्री कृष्ण अर्जुन की जाए और भक्तवृंद की जाए और परमानंद गुड इवनिंग एवरीवन वेलकम सो वी आर रीडिंग फ्रॉम द फोर्थ चैप्टर ऑन भगवत गीता एंड टुनाइट वी आर ऑन द थर्ड ऑफ थ्री इंट्रोडक्टरी वर्सेस टू द चैप्टर we read the verse and then um discuss the introduction in general and the significance of this particular verse krishna says saivadyam saivayam maya tedya yoga prokta pratana bhaktosi me sakacheti rahasyam hi etad uttamam he says that krishna says by me i'm now speaking to you adya today prokta paratana that which i spoke which is from i'm speaking speaking to you today something that's this ancient teaching of yoga because why because bhaktosi me sakacheti because you are my bhakta and my sakha my friend my devotee and my friend and rahasya hi etad uttamam i'm not speaking it the implication is to just anybody because rahasyam uttam it is a uttam supreme rahasyam secret so with regard to the context as i said this is the third verse of three introductory verses to the chapter entitled gyan yoga yoga of knowledge and the word puratana here means ancient as i've said so it refers to here now back to the previous two verses that have introduced the chapter where krishna said what imam vibhashvate yogam proktavan ahamavayam vivasran manave prabhu manurikshva kave pravit evam parampara praptam imam raja shayobidu sakalena mata yoganashta parantapa pratana means the ancient he said what that i spoke this a long time ago ancient times this is as old as the sun he said i spoke it to the sun god and the sun god spoke it to ikshvaku ikshvaku spoke it to manu and this way this imperishable yoga science of yoga as proper would describe it has been passed down evam parampara praptam imam raja shobidu that uh, it's been passed down like in a line like in a chain from teacher to student teacher to student and so forth implication is a formal succession saib evam parampara praptam imam raja shobi do the qualified people rajarshi people who are raj we can take it to mean like this also raj means who's a materially well balanced person a king would traditionally be a well balanced person and capable of therefore administering over others just like you know they it's thought in a democracy that you vote for a person who's really together and has good qualities and so forth and is a well-rounded balanced earnest and all these uh, are the kind of qualities we look for in a leader so raja is a leader well-balanced person so we speak about here horizontally well-developed and raja and rishi rishi means then the vertical development so to have your feet on the ground so to speak materially 
is uh, to be in a good position and to leap up to try to touch the stars. If you only have one foot on the ground, then it, you might fall down. So it's good to be well-rounded and balanced. Some energy should be put into horizontal development for the sake of, not itself, but for the sake of being better situated for vertical growth. That's the whole idea of the Varnashram, for example. How to bring balance into our lives materially, how to balance our physical expression of our sense of self such that it conforms with our psychic reality, these two dimensions of our embodied life. So with some balance there, we're in a better position to go up vertically. And so Varnashram for a purpose only, or the essence of Varnashram, which is about the best we could come up with in today's world. But for the purpose, as I say, of not unto itself, therefore it said what? About Varnashram. That means, yes, that the whole purpose of the way we conduct ourselves materially, the value of that, the extent to which it has value, will be determined by the extent to which Haritoshanam, Sanksidir Haritoshanam, Bhagavad says, the extent to which Hari is Toshanam, is pleased. The pleasing of Hari, this is the heart, then, if you will, of the body as it's sometimes described, of the Varnashram, which has its arms as the administrators and its legs as the working sector and so forth, and the Brahmins as the brain and the Vaishyas producing for the belly and so forth, but all for a purpose, one to just energize and give support to the heart, which, of course, in reality, supports the whole of the body as well. So, anyway, the point is, this was passed down like in a linear way, we get a vision of a physical line that's straight from one teacher to student who becomes a teacher to student and so forth, and that the carrying, if you will, of the torch, the point in which the student becomes the teacher, he or she has some qualifications. And high qualifications are mentioned here, as I say, by the word Rajarshi. Materially, he has or she has integrity and so forth and balance and and spiritually realization. So these kind of people, that is parampara. <laughs> that is the one thing. And evam parampara praptam imam raja shriobidu sakalene amata yoganashta parantapa. One thing is the line and the other thing is time. And time, kala, tells us the what? That the line is not just a straight line of physical bodies, so to speak, but again, a line of realization, and realization will be understood in the context of time. In other words, if I've understood the teaching properly, if I've realized that, then I can represent that in a new time, in a new circumstance, in such a way that it will have the same kind of vitality that it had in a previous time. This is the whole principle of parampara, that there should be new light, not less light than the previous teacher or just as much as the previous teacher, but new light by the blessing of the previous teacher. New light for new circumstances. It's the same flower, but it's just opening up more that we might see it. It's the same jewel, if you will, but looking at it from a different angle than many faceted as it is. So Krishna has spoken about this. It's interesting because 
in many respects, but one, this is a chapter about knowledge, and he begins in the sense in which I'm explaining the first two of these introductory verses with some emphasis on the guru. Later on in this chapter, he'll say what? A very famous verse. No, he says, memory is not one of the qualities, but uh, he says, tadvidhi panipratena pariprasnena sevaya upadakshantite jnanam so, in speaking about knowledge, as he is in this chapter, he introduces the idea of the preceptor. Later in the chapter, as he speaks about different types of knowledge, he lands on this one verse. This is the one place, in the, one of the significant places in the Gita, and there aren't many. We've talked about this before, but one of the significant places in which Krishna speaks about the principle of the teacher, of the guru. And so it comes in a prominent way, a little bit indirectly here, but obvious connection in the introduction of the chapter and in the middle of the chapter as well, towards the later part, actually. So this is the parampara. This is the, the idea here is that this is a, a channel through which this knowledge comes. It's not ordinary knowledge. Ordinary knowledge is the kind of knowledge that we can gather, if you will, and put in our files to draw upon, to use, to further our sense of self in this world. And so it is knowledge that we put on our agenda, so to speak. But this is knowledge that has an agenda of its own. And as we hear it from proper sources, so it becomes apparent to us that this knowledge has an agenda, and I am on its agenda. This is a whole different kind of knowledge then. I cannot take this and put this in my pocket and use it for my purposes to foster my false sense of self and uh, bring attention to myself, further my purposes I conceive it in this world. No. The knowledge is alive, it has an agenda of its own, and we are on that. Very different kind of knowledge that dawns on us at a certain point. We have to change our thinking. Just like I like to send people come because I like to send them down to Handy Woods. Somebody was here just the other day and was asking me about what might be worth seeing. I said, "Go down to Handy Woods State Park. They have a big um, old Handy, they call it, forest where there's a lot of old growth. You know, really big redwoods. It's down by the river, so they you know the roots they get more water than they do up here on the ridge top. So big, big, big trees. The famous." Northern California redwoods, and I said, "Do go and walk in the forest there, and it will give you a different perspective." We tend to walk through a forest, and we see ourselves as the subject, and the trees, and the foliage, and so forth, as the object. But in that forest, the trees are so predominant that you can get a shift in your consciousness for a moment and feel like I'm the subject, and the trees are the object. And this is the kind of a shift that we have to bring about in our life. I remember once sitting with Pujapad Sridhar Maharaj in his veranda, and one of my godbrothers who had come from afar, he asked the Guru Maharaj, is there any service that I can do? And Pujapad Sridhar Maharaj said, well, he said, change your angle of vision. <laughs> Just a small request. And he went to the heart of what service is, is really about. It's not just going through the motions, but a different angle of vision altogether, that I'm to be used this knowledge has a purpose, 
And it has a bigger purpose in mind than I can ever arrive at within, within my mind as to what may be best for me, what will make me happy. And so to change our angle of vision, to see ourselves as object, hmm? it's like the tool is the object and we're the subject that gives it meaning and uses it. So we have to re- reverse the position. We become an object, a conscious object. Puja Patshidamar used to like use the term super subjective. So we may be the subject as consciousness and matter as object, but there's a super subject. So in relation to the super subject, we look like an object, a living one. Yes, that is true. <laughs> so he has to coax us then. That's the difference, to be used voluntarily to draw that out from us. And this is the means that he does that through Guru Parampara. Therefore it's said that we should pay attention there to that place in which Krishna comes to us most prominently, tailor-made, you know, to speak to us. This is the idea of guru. That's why it said that you must have a guru. What is that verse? Tasmat guru prapadyeta jignasu shayutamam. But there's another verse. Eva begatchet. Yeah, must. It said must have a guru. So that <laughs> it sounds real ominous. Oh God, especially in our culture where individualism is so given such a high position. You know, the Western, the Marlboro guy. <clears throat> but he coughs. That's the problem. <laughs> he gets a cough on that horse from those marbles. Uh, so individualism, but uh, it's a rugged individual and it is rugged. It's going against the grain. Actually, we live in an interdependent reality an interconnected reality. So to acknowledge the interdependence and interconnectedness that our material life really is constituted of and then to find independence within that, this is the idea of bhakti. Unto itself, I was, I was at a shoe store the other day and I, I think I mentioned this to some of you that there was, there was a certain shoe being advertised and there was this guy walking on the path, you know, with no one else around and the, the logo or the motto or the, the promotion piece was, follow no one. <laughs> so, this is uh, not the best idea. I probably would look at it as a very, a very simple and common sense kind of approach to ask the questions. They have a saying here that I've heard that goes something like this, real men don't ask questions. <laughs> so, I don't know if it's ever like that. <laughs> I always thought we'd ask a question. It's the easy way to find out if you can find somebody who knows. And probably, of course, you would give that example. If you want to know who your mother is, then what's the best way you could, or your, who your father is, what's the best way you can go and research the files, you know, if you shouldn't know, which is possible these days, more perhaps than it was in the past. But if you don't know who your father is, uh, there's two ways to go about it. You could research, you could look through the you know, birth records or whatever, but he would say the easy way is what? Ask your mother. She knows. So this is the idea. So this Guru Parampara is this channel through which this knowledge comes. It's not ordinary knowledge. It's a different kind of knowledge. I was thinking of doing some video discussions about the nature of consciousness in relation to prominent thinking in the scientific and philosophical circles of the West, like in philosophy of mind and so forth. You know, in these discussions, they like to say you cannot prove that that consciousness is transcendent or that there is God, that there is a transcendental reality. can't be proved. 
And of course, Prabhupada would like to think that it could be proved. And, and I was just thinking about that argument today a little bit. And it has a lot of weight, of course, that it can be proved if you submit yourself to the experiment. The whole idea of yoga is to separate consciousness from matter within embodied life, so as far as possible. So you control the senses and you control the mind and you withdraw from the world of objects and things. And what we find is you exist, you flourish more separate from matter to the extent that yoga will separate us. And if you find a guy living in a cave for 30 years, well, he's pretty disconnected from matter, if you will. Obviously, he's still breathing, he still has a heart, and, and, and so because he's embodied. But for all intents and purposes, he's living, as far as any ordinary person goes, independently of matter. So the proof, of course, would be if you undertook that yourself, then you would prove it to yourself. We couldn't prove it to the third person. That's their problem. But if we could prove it to one, in other words, if we could give one person, a skeptic, the experience, then it's over. <laughs> they say they might be able to create a machine at some point that will give the God experience by hooking things up to your brain and you know, causing it to function a particular way. And then you get this feeling, I'm one with everything, and so forth. Maybe, but then no one would, everyone would keep putting a dime in that machine. No one would unplug from that. So, anyway, to get this kind of knowledge, there's a method. And Krishna's talking about that here. He's talking about the method through Guru Parampara. And so he says here, what, today? He says, so that knowledge that I've been talking about, and what is that kind of yoga? That may be a question to us, because why? He has been talking about Nishkam Karma Yoga. This chapter is about Gyan Yoga. So he says... This ancient yoga was taught to the sun god and so forth. It came through the parampara system of mind, which incidentally is what Krishna says he arranges as a solution to a spiritual problem in the world. In other words, the solution to a spiritual vacuum, if you will, or shortcoming is parampara. It means literally, it means one after another. So there's another that comes to fill the vacuum. Sometimes people today in some modern Gaudiya circles, they want to cut off the one after the other and stick with the previous. This is to say that in the name of a solution to what they perceive as a spiritual vacuum. But this goes against the very core teaching of the Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna says very clearly, when, due to the influence of time, there's a spiritual deficiency, another comes to fill it. Not that we go back to the previous one. That's never the solution. Another comes. And of course, we have to understand, as I said the other night, the deficiency, that's coming from Krishna anyway, because he is time. So Krishna is making a play with his devotees. He's obscuring the knowledge that another devotee may come, and he may have the pleasure of shedding light on that devotee. Krishna likes to do that, to showcase his devotees. So this is a play between Krishna and his devotees, this uh, idea of Guru Parampara and the necessity of it ongoing and so forth. So here, when Krishna says, Parathar, that ancient science, that's what I was talking about in the previous two verses, he says, that would went to the sun god and on down and so forth, and it comes through the system of Parampara, and it's, it's a timely affair, as the time demands by circumstance of necessity, New light, new insight, people's thinking changes, the way they look at things change. So they have to present the same truth in a different way, that it will have relevance in life and so forth. So he says, anyway, that old 
teaching. It's been around forever. Again, the question might come, is it Jnana Yoga he's talking about? Is it Nishkam Karma Yoga, which is the subject of the previous text? Well, we learned in the previous chapter that the two are really one. Nishkam Karma Yoga and Jnana Yoga are really one. In that one, Nishkam Karma Yoga is for those who can't sit and live the contemplative life because they have too many desires, but it's the way by which they can act, which they have a tendency for, by sacrificing the fruits and offering the fruits to Krishna, that knowledge will come. And then they can take up the contemplative life. So it's one thing talked about for different people in different stages. But through all of this, this is the proverbial yoga ladder, the first six chapters of the Gita, Krishna is really bringing Arjuna to the idea of bhakti. And so there are some really nice points to be drawn from this introductory section here and from the first part of the chapter that discusses the avatar tattva to make the case for the fact that Krishna is really teaching about bhakti. These are the results from Nishkam Karma Yoga, the results of Jnana Yoga. They will be built into bhakti. They will be the early developments we should look for within bhakti. So, here he says what? That today, I'm speaking to you, this ancient science of yoga, which is Nishkam Karma Yoga, which is Jnana Yoga, which is ultimately Bhakti Yoga. And why? Bhakti si me sakacheti rahasya hi etat uttamam. Because you are my devotee and you are my friend also. The idea here is that why two things? It's a little bit the subject of adhikar comes up, eligibility. We learn in the second and third chapter that Arjuna had eligibility at the time for Nishkam Karma Yoga. So here's some, again, discussion of eligibility comes. It says that you're qualified to hear this supreme secret because you're devoted, my devotee, and you're my friend. So this is obviously moving in the direction then of bhakti. And here two things, both. Very nice. You're my devotee and you're my friend. Devotee means, if you're devoted, means you have the master and you have the student and... Master speaks and student listens, and in a classical situation, the servant just does what the master says. No questions asked. But when you have a friend, when there's friendship factored into it, then there's some intimacy, and then there can be questions. So <laughs> that's why Rupa Goswami says, Vishram Benaguru Seva. He says, when he explains the limbs of bhakti, he says, first thing is, Ado Guru Vashrayaha, take shelter of the Guru. Take shelter of the Guru means to come, sit, and hear, and listen, and as your doubts are cleared and removed, you go forward. If doubts are not cleared, you question. If the teacher can clear the questions, then you go forward. So we can say, come and sit before the Guru and doubt. You think, oh my God, that would be offensive. I would. Uh, no, this, this supposed to, that relationship is supposed to foster questioning. It's a friendly relationship. It's tinged, we should say, with friendship. Vishrambena Guru Seva says, Ado Guru Vashraya, take shelter of the Guru and Siksha Dikshadi Vishrambena Guru Seva. You should take Siksha and initiation and serve the Guru Vishrambena. Vishramba means with confidence, 
with a sense of intimacy where the heart of the guru and the disciple become one, like in friendship. Arjuna's relationship with Krishna is that he's a sakha, he's a purisambandi. That means he's a city friend of Krishna. In the Braj, the relationship of friendship with Krishna is, of course, more intimate than in the city. But Arjuna is famous, famous for being Krishna's friend. And also his friendship is mixed with dasya bhakti. So it's uh, primarily sakya and mixed with dasya. So this is a very ideal combination for the disciple. It makes for enough intimacy that there can be questioning and not enough intimacy <laughs> because of the service aspect that you will take, they say, what is the saying? Familiarity breeds contempt, something like that. So Arjuna is the ideal disciple, the admixture of Sakya and Dasya. Of course, he has that in relation to Krishna. Krishna is his guru and so forth. So it carries over to some extent for ourselves as well. And if we look a little deeper here, we'll see also what rahasya hi etad uttamam. Rahasya is a very nice word in Gaudiya terminology. It means secret, but it's repeatedly used by the acharyas like sarahasyam tadangam cha. Krishna spoke to Brahma, the chatur shloki, the four essential verses of the Bhagavatam. Let me give you this secret tadangam cha with its admixture of vibhav, sanchari bhav, anubhav, sattvika bhav, all ingredients combined together that make for rasam, anandam, this secret kind of bhakti. I give that to you. I empower you to understand that. So this word rahasyam here, also later in Gita, what, in the ninth chapter, we hear rajvija, rajaguyam. Same idea. Guyam means secret. This is the the king of secrets. So it's a very confidential thing. And again, confidential things you share with your friends. If you have a friend in confidence, you bring it out. Let me tell you something, you know, this, like that. <laughs> so also we know this, that Rag Bhakti, Braj Bhakti, the Chaitanya Mahaprabhu came to give, it really begins with Sakya. There is Dasya Bhakti in Braj also. But it's tinged with sakya. Therefore, Brahma said what? Ho bhagyam, ho bhagyam, nanda gopa bhajokasham, yan mitram paramanandam purna brahma sanatanam. He's looking at Vrindavan. He said, oh, after the Brahmavimohana Lila, he got acquaintance with Krishna's cowherd Lila. He said, oh my gosh, this Braj place, what kind of place is this? Everybody here is the mitram, the friend of Bhagwan. Everybody. So this Braj Bhakti begins with Sakyam. Once Prabhupada was asked by one of my Gopadas about his relationship with Krishna, he was trying to get something out of Prabhupada. And he said, Prabhupada, everybody in the Gaudiya Sampradaya is, is in Gopi Bhav, right? And Prabhupada said, down to Sakyam. <laughs> From Sakyam up. To, down. So, of course, that he expressed many times that was his sentiment and leaning and so forth. So, Braj Bhakti, that is the highest secret. And it begins with this Sakya. As I say, there's Dasya, but it's tinged with Sakya. Brahma gave an overview. Everybody's the friend. Of course, Vishwana Chakri Thakura said, Brahma is in a friendly relationship with Krishna. Prabhupada echoed that in his commentary on the Chatur Shloka also, where after Krishna gave the knowledge, or before he shook his hand and said, Hey, good luck. <laughs> so, <laughs> Prabhupada said, You see, he's 
friends with Krishna. So we're seeing here some idea of how bhakti is, bhakti will come out fully at the end of the sixth chapter, and of course the middle six chapters are all about bhakti, but it's building up to that. And here it's coming in the chapter about knowledge also. That this book, in terms of knowledge, reaches the pinnacle in Braj Bhakti, where jnana is shunya. <laughs> so this is the height of knowledge, jnana shunya. Shunya means devoid. means that the love is not encumbered by knowledge. Even the knowledge that Krishna is God is not encumbered by that. So there's a free flow of the heart. If you knew that I was God, and of course I'm not, then you might back up, think, oh my God. It would cause some distance, create some distance. What we find in the Brajalila is what? The philosophical reality is that when the infinite wants to get close to the finite, in order for that to be possible, the infinite has to take on a finite-like appearance. Otherwise, we think, oh my God, I'm sitting next to the infinite. Oh my God, how will I wrestle with him? How will I chase him like Mother Yasoda does, and so forth. So he assumes, of course, this is an eternal present. He is forever in such a position of intimacy as Krishna. That's what Krishna means. Krishna is the infinite in an infinitely affectionate form, and therefore he appears finite. The whole Brajalila appears finite. People are attached to their cows and their houses and... When they wanted to know from Krishna, what will we be in our next life? He said, oh, no, no problem, I'll show you. He showed him Goloka, and they said, oh, great. Nanda will be there, Yashoda will be there. We'll all be with our families and our houses and our kids in the Jamuna River and so forth. And Krishna, of course, in the center. Love is very difficult to understand. It tends to camouflage itself. Braj Bhakti looks selfish. Even from the Vaikuntha perspective, it looks like, huh? You can, how can you relate like that with Bhagwan? supposed to give to Bhagavan, and you're tying him up and chastising him and, and so forth, the love camouflages itself. Therefore it said, Nastapraeshu Baddveshu Nityam Bhagavata Seva. You have to study Bhagavatam very carefully to understand what the Brajalila is. Regularly you have to study that, otherwise it's easy to misunderstand. This camouflaging, this means Rahasyam Uttam, as it's mentioned here. It's a very secret place. What does it say? Brahma, what does Brahma say? Aham bolokam eva itiyam me. Long way to go to the last line. He says, anyway, this place, Golokam, Golokam itiyam, he said, this is known by very few rare people. This is very difficult to understand. Just see the height of that, depicted in the Bhagavatam. Selfish girls. They're selfish. They gave up their children to run off with some boy. They ran away from their duties. They risked the embarrassment of the whole community to run off with some boy in the middle of the night. Very selfish. But if we look carefully, we understand the underlying philosophy. So we see, oh, it's the highest love. Selflessness. More than selflessness. In selflessness, there'll be some calculation. I should do it because it's the right thing to do. There, they self-forgetfulness. They heard the flute and they went. So it's a great secret. This secret, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, has opened the doors to this. And here, Krishna can be seen to be 
referring to that. And he says, this is for my friends. <laughs> I led my friends in here, who are my devotees, of course. They can know this secret. You're like that, Arjuna, so I feel comfortable speaking to you about that. Any question? What was the time? Ten to eight. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> could you speak a little more about the selfishness versus selflessness of, of Bhakti Yoga? Selfishness versus selflessness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, very simply, love is about giving, right? And so it's not about taking. So in material life, then we are on the take, so to speak, because we identify with matter, so we have perceived necessities that are chasing us, so to speak. Our body is our karma that's come to get satisfaction from... It's the fruits for the seeds that we've sown, right? So they're chasing us, so to speak. Our past is chasing us in the form of our present. So we have a perceived need. And so we take, exploit, if you will, the world in the name of meeting that need. So we have a, a world of hunters and hunted. It depends which way you look. You know, look this way, you're hunting. That way you're being hunted. Jivo jiva sadivanam. One living being is food for another. So the basic idea of material life is that it's selfish. It's taking. So now we go to spiritual life. So in one sense, it's the antithesis of that. So it's selfless. So we stop from taking. Now in bhakti, the way we stop taking is by beginning to give. In jnana, you stop taking by not adding anything positive, but just trying to stop taking. You understand? In bhakti, we stop taking by beginning to give. We found the person worthy of giving. We found the center, like the center of the body, the stomach, let's say. So we put the food there. Then it manages to distribute the food in a way that no other part could, in a way that nourishes all the parts. So in bhakti, we find the center of Krishna, so we we begin to give there. Now, in the context of bhakti, then there will be different degrees of selfishness and selflessness. You follow me? So that's your whole kind of ladder of bhakti up to the gopis' love for Krishna, the whole Brajlila. So how can there be selfishness in bhakti? Prahlad Maharaj is the beginning of the end of material selfishness in that kind of ladder, if you will, that scale. Prahlad Maharaj, he didn't take anything. The Sringadev tried to force him to take something, take a benediction from me. I'm here. I came, this is what I do, I give benedictions, take something. No, I don't want anything, I don't want anything, I don't want anything. Amikichuchayana, I don't want anything. So we have to come to that point. But then when we progress in bhakti through, when we look at different devotees on the scale, so to speak, they're all perfect, but there can be a selfishness within bhakti where there's a sense of self is maintained. So in Vaikuntha, for example, there's dutiful love. It's... Love because God should be loved. There's a God. God should be served. It's the right thing to do. You find this in Ram Lila also. It's called Mariada Lila. So it's the right way to conduct oneself. He's God. He should be served. He's the king. He should be served, or in the case of Ram Lila. So when we think like this, then when the devotee thinks like this, 
his sense of self is still part of the picture. I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do, so there's some head kind of involved, some calculation. Do you understand me? Now, if we go to the Brajalila, we find something different there, Vrindavan Lila. We find that on a very high, high level, we find what's called Sambandhanuga, the relationships of Dasya, Sakya, and Vatsalya, servitude, friendship, and parental love for Krishna. It's called Sambandhanuga. So Sambandha means relationship. So it means that they have a kind of love for Krishna that has some reason to it. In other words, of course you should love your son. Of course you should love your friend. Of course you should love your teacher. Those are relationships that we acknowledge. Now the gopis, when we go to the gopis, of course they shouldn't love Krishna. There's no reason whatsoever. In fact, if we were to bring reason to bear, they shouldn't be serving Krishna. Therefore, their law is called Kamanuga. It's just out of desire. It means total heart, no head is involved. So they hear the flute, for example, they run in the night to join Krishna. There are a million reasons, 108 reasons why they shouldn't go, but they don't listen to any of those reasons. They just go. It's like, to give an example, if, let's say, you're walking down the street and there's a fire in a building, and someone says, my daughter's in there. And so you just, like, without thinking about it, you just run in the building. People do that sometimes. And you risk your life, and you come out, and you save the child. And then the newspapers come and say, oh, you're a hero. You did that. What, did you, what were you thinking when you did that? And you say, I don't know. I wasn't thinking. I just did it. <laughs> Something, so you forgot yourself, just to use a crude example. So the Braj Bhakti in general, and the gopis' love in particular, is a kind of a self-forgetfulness. It's beyond the calculative love, if you will, of Vaikuntha, where it's calculated, he's God, therefore we should love him. In Vaikuntha, it's like, we should love Narayan, and we do go to church on Sundays. In our house, we do the puja for Narayan. In the house of Nandamaras, they have the Shalagram of the Shringa, and they do the puja, but their mind is somewhere else, just like you people. You know, you serve Krishna, but your mind is somewhere else. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, so they're like, they're doing it in a good way there. Because <laughs> their mind, they're serving Narayan, but their mind is running with Krishna. Officially, they're doing Vaidhi Bhakti for Narayan in the home, but their minds are also, let me get this over with, and get to my son, or get to my, my friend, or whatever may be the case, in terms of their relationship with Krishna. So, so they're, they're not serving Krishna, who is Svayam Bhagavan, for any reason so to speak. Love, is said, knows no reason. So they are the, that is the exemplar of self-forgetfulness as compared to self-sacrifice, let's say, which is a conscious thing that one does and can be said to have some spiritual selfishness within it. I'll give you another example and conclude with this. Rukmini. Rukmini is, the, is Krishna's queen in Dwaraka, Right? Okay, so Rukmini wanted to marry Krishna. And this guy, Sisupal, came and was arranged that he, she would marry Sisupal, and she couldn't deal with that idea. So she was in the palace, the queen, and the marriage arrangement was going on, and she wrote a letter to Krishna 
please come and save me from this. Kidnap me. It's a certain kind of marriage, you know, the kidnap marriage. So come and kidnap me. So she arranged a Vedic way and observed that she would be able to, to maintain the observance of Vedic law and get Krishna as her husband. But she wasn't prepared to break the Vedic law like the gopis who didn't think of the Vedic law. They went against the Vedic law, apparently, to go with Krishna. So they forgot themselves. They, there were no consequence that they, they were, that they were concerned about. Rukmini was concerned about the consequence of, the, of breaking the Vedic law, so she would only go under certain circumstances. So she had a sense of self that she wanted to maintain, which is okay. I mean, it's just Krishna's consort. <laughs> but there are the point being that each devotee's love is perfect in its own right for each devotee. But nonetheless, if we step back and look objectively at it, we can see some involves greater sacrifice, greater selflessness than others. Does that help? And, the, you know, and that's kind of taking it to a higher level. I don't know if your question was going that high, but let's say, look, in relation to sadhakas, practitioners. And so, you know, we, here's the call for selfless service, and then we may have some desire where we want to serve in a particular way, let's say, rather than just be, do what you want with me, kind of at your disposal. So that may be a condition that, you know, knowingly or unknowingly, many devotees come with such a condition. They can hear and understand that may not be ideal. But if they're fortunate, they get a good guide, then he or she will help them in such a way as to engage them in terms of their interests. I mean, the guru has a good capacity to do that, to make meaning out of nothing. You know, Somebody says to me, Guru Maharaj, uh, you know, I, I wanted to go to Alaska. And, and I'm thinking, oh, great. That's just what we want. We want you to go to Alaska. And, I, you, know, I have, you know, I have a friend there, and I was thinking, you know, so you think, okay, I'll tell you what, when you're there, you know, do this. Okay, you know, what do they make in Alaska? Something special, I don't know, snow but, or ice, but bring me an ice cube, you know, when you, when you come back, you know. <laughs> so, then he offers the ice cube to the deity or something, you know, and then the whole trip had some meaning. So, so he tries to, you know, connect it and, and give it some, some value. That's the, uh, that's the kind of the, the art of being the, the guru is kind of like a, like a juice, you know, machine that has a filter on it and all the pits and all the rind, it just stays on the top and the, only the juice comes through. So he takes only the juice and then gives that to Krishna and then keeps the rest. It's a messy, you know, kind of a job. <laughs> so, but, but anyway, so that's a natural kind of condition to talk about on a lower level. We may have some desire. Like say, for example, you like to do gardening. So you may think, you know, man, I really want to do gardening. I want to, you know, so, but, you know, that might be a selfish desire. And we're being taught here to just, you know, give up all desires. But couldn't two be worked together <laughs> in some way? That's a reasonable, you know, position to take. So someone help you with that, you know, to engage you. And, and hopefully, you know, coming to the, obviously you're not going to bring all types of wrong types of desires and expect that they will be engaged and so forth. But bhakti is very user-friendly in that way. So there are, there, it can engage the whole, whole world. So I think that there is some degree of selfishness in the sadhaka that he or she has to work with. And 
find a generous guide to help. Does that help? You know, if we want to be honest about our situation and our desires, and we want to be also educated about what is bhakti, and then we see what bhakti is and where we are, and, you know, that guru is meant for bridging the gap. That's the purpose, in one sense, to bridge the gap. So, therefore, you're not going to find a more generous manifestation of Krishna than in the guru. That's the teaching, right? That's what I found, anyway. I found that Prabhupada was very generous. Does that help, then? Is, is there anything further on that that you want to ask? Because it's a broad question. I don't know exactly what you're... Or anyone else on that subject? Or another subject? Yes? It's also a little bit broad. Uh, but in the, in the general yoga community, bhakti is very marginalized as kind of you know, one of several angas and means to an end, which is something. Mm-hmm. So I uh, basically would be, um, it would be very nice to hear from your personal perspective how to explain that in a way that really shows that uh, bhakti is not uh, some kind of means bhakti is an ultimate. It's an end unto itself. Well, there's a lot of ways to talk about that. One interesting point is that kirtan is popular, right? So you can find kirtan in all the yoga groups nowadays, practically. Maybe Shiva kirtan or Durga kirtan or Ganesh kirtan or Krishna kirtan. But if you look carefully, what you'll find... And it may be useful to draw people to the texts. That's where you have your strength, where these ideas really come from. So with regard to kirtan, you can make the point that kirtan is an anga, a limb of bhakti. It's not a limb of yoga. It's not a limb of jnana. It's a limb of bhakti, and it's the prominent limb of bhakti. And it's meant for Krishna, too. Shiva never says, just chant my name and uh, I'll be there. You know, he doesn't say that. Durga doesn't say that. Krishna says that. He says, I'm not aham vaikuntha tishtami yoginam hridayeshupa. I'm not in the hearts of yogis, I'm not in vaikuntha, but nard. Wherever my devotees are chanting my name, that's where I'm present. So kirtan is really for Krishna. And it's nice that it can overflow and you can do kirtan here or there, but this work comes from bhakti. And it's a very natural way to express love in song. I mean, all the songs practically are about love or how bad love is or how good it should be or could be or was or, you know, that's for the most part, even in an abstract way, you know, a philosophical song is usually really about love too. A political song, it's about how things aren't loving enough, you know, or... And so then we come to the idea of love in the heart and it's pretty easy to make the case for the heart is the most important organ of the body. If your limbs are dead... It's one thing. If your brain is dead, it's one thing. But if your heart is dead, it's over. So karma yoga, of course, is for the limbs, and jnana yoga is for the head, and bhakti yoga is for the heart. So the heart is central. And for that matter, if you don't put your heart into jnana yoga or nishkam karma yoga, you won't get any results either. So actually the fact is that people 
If anything about our human experience will tell us something about enlightened life, which it should, I would think, one being the, you know, the reflection of the other, so to speak, then what we see about our human life is that everybody wants love. The whole world is living for love. We cannot rest until we find love. So if you have a metaphysic that ends up extinguishing the individual or merging the individual with the one, there's, there's no possibility of reciprocal dealings or love there. So if you have a metaphysical worldview or a yogic worldview that does away with love in the name of loving, that's a very, you can get a very abstract form of love by not taking anymore because there's no one to take. <laughs> there's no taker anymore. The individual's been extinguished. But the full idea, the full face of love, that's not going to be found in that kind of metaphysic. But in bhakti it will. So if you, if you look carefully too, if you look at, look at Buddhism, what is a popular form of Buddhism today? The most popular form of Buddhism is probably Tibetan Buddhism and the Dalai Lama. And what is this whole thing? Compassion. So here's Buddhism, and it's not really that much about love in the way that Gaudiya Vaishnavism is, but it's compassion is a form of love. That's the most attractive form of Buddhism. Then you hear at modern neo-Advaitans, they speak about the path of the heart, Advaita, and so you know, What really draws people in is this heart idea, this love idea. People are living for, for loving. As I say, you, people cannot rest until they find love. And then when they find it, they can't rest either. So that's why, you know, in the bhakti sense, bhakti is an active, ongoing culture. We look until we find, for example, in the context of ordinary life, as I say, we can't rest until we find love. And when we find it, well, it has an orbit of its own. It's like she loves me, she loves me not. You know, it's, it's a roller coaster, but we don't get off because we're living to love. And in the spiritual context, then we can't rest if we're a thoughtful person until we find the truth, the truth embodied in the sadhu, and that truth will be bhakti. And when we get it, we start to move again. Bhakti has his own orbit. It's not for sh- Mahaprabhu wasn't teaching about shantarasa. So much to be done. So anyway, I think you have to talk about love and about the heart, and people will relate to that very much. So a form of, of yoga that employs devotion for something else, where devotion ends, it doesn't answer the heart's necessity for loving. And also, very simply put, if bhakti can give mukti, then what is the position of bhakti? Because mukti doesn't give bhakti, but bhakti gives mukti. So mukti is then within the fold of bhakti and something more. And, I mean, there's many ways to talk about it, but you have to appeal to their hearts, I think. Bhakti as a means for knowledge sounds very selfish. You're doing bhakti to get something. You should do bhakti for its own sake. You should serve without thinking of getting. As much as you're thinking of getting, you're not giving. And of course, then if you explain Krishna, then people understand this is where you can give. Because here's the point. If you're going to give without expectation of getting, right? A lot of people go, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Then there has to be a taker who's going to take unlimitedly. 
right? If giving up things is all that giving is about, then it has to end at a certain point. Do you understand? If my giving amounts to giving up taking, then it has limited life. That's not the full expression of love, just to stop taking. So in Gyan, we stop taking. But in Bhakti, we found a center to give where we can actually give unlimitedly. So to give unlimitedly, two things have to be in place. One, you have to have a taker on the other end who can take unlimitedly. And then you have to give without expectation of getting anything in return. So there's a motivation of also. Anyway, if you want to, if people could readily understand, yes, I, we should give and we should give. We should, love means to give without expectation of getting anything in return. No selfishness. This is love. It's, so that's what we should do. Yes, that's the highest thing. So what's the implication of that? The implication is there has to be a taker on the other end. Otherwise, if the giving is just giving up taking, as I said, it has to end at some point. So Krishna means, that's why Krishna is portrayed the way he is. He's an enjoyer. He's just enjoying taking. That sounds, well, I don't know about that. Some taker on the other end. But the, the point is that because he is the center, and it is appropriate for him to take, the whole circumference is nourished, just like the stomach is the center. If so I'm giving food in my stomach and the tongue says, hey, wait a minute, why swallow and give it to the stomach? I could, you know, just taste this forever. Then, obviously, there'll be a problem. There'll be a breakdown. But if it gives to the stomach, then it's transformed in a way that no other organ can do, and energy from the food goes everywhere. So this is what the center does. The center holds the circumference there is no circumference without the center. So if we are to give unlimitedly without expectation of return, then there has to be a taking agent on the other end. That's the whole idea of Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. You probably would say over and over again, Krishna, the Supreme Personality of God. Krishna, the Supreme Personality of God. What he's doing there is he's asserting the sutra throughout all of his books and sentences Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam, Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam, Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. And Jiva Goswami says, this phrase, Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam from Bhagavatam, is the key to understanding the whole tattva of the Bhagavatam. Prabhupada's like giving this mantra to people over and over again. Krishna, you think it's like, isn't it a bit repetitious here? Krishna, the Supreme Personality of God. We know that. Okay, Krishna, next paragraph, the Supreme Personality of God. So there's a method to his madness there. And Supreme Personality of God, it means... The supreme enjoyer. Somebody asked the other day or a while back that what kind of God do you have? This Krishna is just this enjoyer, right? Christ, on the other hand, is a sacrificer. This is really the idea of God. Sacrifice, giving, and so forth. And I said, well, you know, giving is good. We recommend that. But if someone is going to give, there has to be a taker. There has to be a taker on the other hand. Krishna is the taking end. Hmm? That's why he's depicted as an enjoyer. He is the enjoyer of all the sacrifices and so forth. But as a result of his enjoyment, then we all enjoy, we're all nourished. So anyway, something like that. Talk about love. Everyone will identify with love. And love is a temporary thing. Is love is only an instrument? Or is it an end unto itself? I should use love for something else? No one will agree with that. That's what they're saying. Use bhakti for something else? For mukti? Use bhakti so that you can stop doing bhakti? What kind of bhakti is that? Just make common sense. People go, yeah, that's not good. Right? 
And then, of course, if you can draw them to the text and so forth, then you can demonstrate. Like here, you take, this is the fourth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. It's about knowledge, right? What kind of knowledge is there? Is there any one verse in this chapter that says, Brahman and, and uh, Jivan are one? No. It's about Gyan Yoga. The whole idea of Gyan Yoga, much of the idea of Gyan Yoga is just very much a misconception. Here's Gyan Yoga. How does the chapter begin? Krishna begins talking about himself. You know what he's going to do in the next few verses? He's going to talk about avatar tattva. He's going to talk about the difference between the jiva and brahman. Not the oneness of the two. <laughs> He's going to talk about the difference. He's going to establish, I'm different from you, Arjun. I remember all my past births, and you don't. That's why I can say, I talked to the sun god a long time ago, and I talk, I'm sitting here in the chariot at the same time. Krishna speaking these three introductory verses, giving the history of this yoga, to give Arjun some idea like, wow, this is a good thing. It's been around for a long time. Okay, okay. But he causes a confusion in Arjun because he says, I spoke this to the sun god. And he's thinking, wait a minute, you're sitting here on a chariot. You spoke this to the sun god a long time ago. Um, how am I going to put that together? That confusion that Krishna creates in Arjun gives him the opportunity to speak about avatar tattva and the difference between himself and the jiva. This is the kind of knowledge. It's sambandagyan. That's useful for bhakti. It does talk about the extent to which we are one with Bhagwan, but it never anywhere says Atma and Paramatma are one. Jiva is an illusion. Individuality. It never says that anywhere in Bhagavad Gita. So the real idea of Jnana Yoga from Bhagavad Gita is something that is within Bhakti Yoga. The Jnana, the realization of the difference between matter and spirit. So... Yeah, so bhakti as a means to knowledge. That's the way many people look at that. We're teaching shuddha bhakti, you tell them. It's a different idea. Bhakti for its own sake. So, all right, let me stop there. Simad Bhagavad Gita ki jai.